Hey, it's Nate, and I'm here with an apology. If you listened to the last episode, then you probably heard us say that we were going to cover The Lair of the White Worm. We did read it. We did record that episode. Sadly, due to technical difficulties, we lost the recording. As far as I can tell, it is unrecoverable. But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging, so I reached into the archives and found an older ep to upload. There was a previous incarnation of this podcast... It kind of fizzled away. Most of those episodes are lost, but there are a few still hanging around, so when I get a chance, I'll, I'll upload them on the feed for you guys to listen to. That version of the podcast was pretty much the same, but we t- covered longer works and we recorded less frequently, about once a month. So this episode that I have for you today is us covering Tanith Lee's novel, Night's Master. I think it's a pretty good episode. It's a pretty interesting book. Uh, if you like the discussion, I definitely recommend tracking it down and reading it. If you wanted our takes on Lair of the White Worm, I can give them to you real quick. Uh, the book's not good. Andrea's take was mostly that uh, Bram Stoker was old and had lost it. My take was that he was never really a good writer, and the structure of Dracula being letters, you know, told in first person in-universe by the characters covered up for a lot of his weaknesses as a writer, and in Lair of the White Worm, he was completely exposed. So there you go. Uh, Enjoy the episode. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we talk about books. And the book we're talking about this week is one that I picked. It's called Night's Master by Tanith Lee. It's a fantasy novel from... 1979? 78. 78? Okay. I don't know how to tackle... Usually we do a synopsis. A little synopsis before we get into the discussion. I'm not entirely sure how to tackle it for this one because a lot happens in this book. Essentially, it's three... It's one novel split up into three books. The first part is called... The Light... It's called Light Underground. The second one is Tricksters. And the last one is The World's Lore. And they're all connected because they happen chronologically... And because they all involve, in some manner, the demon prince Azerarn. I think that's how you say it? That's how we're going to say it. That's how we're going to say it. Because the other way it looks like you might pronounce it is Azrarn. And that's weird to say and sounds goofy. Azerarn sounds cooler. So should I run through each of the books and give a quick synopsis of them? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so the part one, the light book one, the light underground, it starts off with Azerarn adopting... A human baby from a dying woman because the baby is beautiful. And he takes the baby to Under-Earth, where the demons live, and has his servants raise the baby in his palace. And Azaron has a different perspective on time than humanity. So when he... He's like a casual day out for Azaron translates to years in human time. So he kind of dips in and out of this baby's... Development as it grows into a beautiful young man named Sivesh. And then he and Azrarn become lovers. But Sivesh longs for sunlight and the surface 
you know, essentially the the world where he was born, and eventually leaves Azeron to go to live on Earth, which is in this world is flat. It's a big flat disc. There's a Tales from the Flat Earth is the name of the series that this belongs to, and because Azeron is like a jealous demon lord, everything that demons love they slay in the end. I believe is the phrase we're given. He tricks Savesh into riding a demon horse out into the middle of the ocean. And then the horse disappears at the, when light comes because demons can't survive in the sun. And then Savesh falls into the ocean and drowns. And one of the things that Azarar did to try and keep Savesh in the Underearth was he grew him a beautiful woman out of a flower. And her name is Ferazin. And the rest of book one deals with she cries tears that a dwarf then forges into a necklace and then gets in a fight with another dwarf over who gets to present the necklace to Azeron. The necklace comes to Earth as a cursed object of, like, greed and envy. Eventually ends up in the hands of a healer, a blind healer poet named Kazir, who sees a vision of Ferizin, and he goes on kind of an Orphic journey to get to free Ferizin from imprisonment in Under-Earth. And then book two deals initially with a conqueror king named uh, Zorashad, who is like, he believes himself to be a god and runs afoul of Azerarn and is punished for his hubris. His daughter is ferried out Romanov style out of the castle, becomes wounded and deformed, is raised by a priest in the wilderness, a healer in the wilderness. And then she eventually becomes a sorceress who deals in black magic and reconquers her father's kingdom and then torments two brothers who have a horde of cursed diamonds. That's book two. Trickster. Tricksters. Book three deals with a beautiful woman that Azarn uh, covets who rejects him. So he turns her husband into a monster and cleaves the soul of her child in two, a male half and a female half that are separated. And so the first part of that book deals with the, the cleaved soul trying to reunite. And then the second half deals with the husband who had been turned into a monster being freed centuries later by a magician and then becoming a dark sorcerer uh fueled by hatred, and then eventually becoming a disembodied force of hatred that threatens to destroy the Earth and is stopped because Azeron sacrifices his life to stop him. I so th- I think ultimately book three is the weirdest book in the... Well, book, th- essentially, book three is when it... Be- book three is probably is the weirdest. It's kind of the one that becomes Azeron's story rather than him just being a sort of background figure that drives the plot of the other stories. When I was reading this, I thought, I mean, I really love the book and I love the atmosphere. And I, after reading all the stories together, I realized that this was, because it's the first book in the series, this is the book where she sets the world. This is her world building book. And it's sort of caged in a way that it's almost like she's creating a mythology or it's a linked fairy tales. It sort of has that a thousand and one night's stories where there's sort of these um, stories that have sort of not quite happy endings, but they have like some kind of 
story that they're conveying that's giving some kind of like um, morality tale or cautionary tale or like towards the end in the third book when Azeron is reborn with the seven maidens it's almost like a like grim fairy tale yeah they each give birth to a piece of Azeron's body and it contains the second major dick joke in the novel the first being a, a story we are told about a, um, no, no, the first one is a character is punished by having a snake bite their ding dong. Right. That's the first dig joke. The second one is when they make a sly, re- the, the midwife won't tell the father which piece his last daughter delivered of Azeron's body, but she says it's a fine specimen. Right, right. That is a very strange story. But it's a, it's like a, it's like a collection of stories that are all in some way related to the flat earth, related to Azeron, related to sort of the world that she's building that's going to later become the stories that she creates. And I, after doing some research, I realized that there's like the earth in her, in her mythos has four layers. Mm-hmm. And then the first layer is the underneath the realm of the demon where Azron lives, and it's pretty much a city that he runs, and he has all these um, drins that are sort of like the trolls and demons that create sort of the jewelry and the beautiful things that are kind of prevalent in the upper world. They're, they're very coveted, these magical objects that they create there. Yeah, there's, there's The city is called Druhim Vanashta, and then there are multiple demons. There's the drin who are like, Dwarves, right? That's what I when I said a dwarf earlier. I meant a drin. There's the Ashva, which are like incubi and succubi, and then there's the Vazru, which I don't really remember they are. I think they're like warriors, or they're just like generic demon rabble. I think that's that's right. And then there's the flat Earth, which is the Earth where the humans live, and that's almost like medieval times. The way she sort of describes it, they don't have a lot of technology. Um, a lot of them are rural farmers. There's this sort of feudal culture with some of the kings and the knights that live there. It's got the term I've heard a lot is medieval stasis. Like this novel covers thou- like a th- several thousand years, I think, or at least a thousand years. And they never advance in their technology level. Exactly. I mean, they have like carriages and boats, but they don't have cars or anything like that. And then the upper earth, which comes into play in the second, third books, that's where the gods or the godlike creatures live. Yeah. And there's not a lot of stories about them in this, but there's like a nod to them. The whole um, cleaved soul storyline talks about going up into the mountains with the Well, at the, the end gods. of... Towards the end of book three, Azeron travels to Upper Earth right. to entreat the gods to save the Earth. And they reject him because they're like these aloof cosmic intelligences that just don't care about the Earth or mankind in the way that Azeron does. Yes. And then the final one is the Inner Earth, which really is barely mentioned in the stories. But that's where the dead live. And there's sort of some mention of it when there's a story plot line between the fairy... Uh, the flower princess and the blind um, minstrel when she dies yeah. it kind of makes a nod to that but that's not a really big part of the story so. yeah we don't get a lot of that there are a couple characters that are dead but they're portrayed as being like wandering spirits yeah 
we don't really see the the realm of the dead, I think, at all directly in the story. I think it's also interesting to note that the copy of the book that we read had illustrations by George Barr, which were really great illustrations, especially the one with Severus. Sevesh? Sevesh, where he was on the horse and, you know, you could see that. Um, I found out, too, from my research that he goes on to be an important artist for um, D&D books. Yeah, so I, I definitely kind of recognized see- his style. That I didn't know that off the top of my head, but that makes sense. I feel like I, I've definitely seen his work in D&D books. I think his stuff definitely added to the, like, uh, Thousand and One Nights vibe. Like, I feel like I've read copies of that that have the, these, like, thin line pen and ink drawings, which are the same source that he does. We'll definitely tweet out um, some... I screenshotted a bunch of the illustrations, and we'll definitely tweet them out. I really... When I was reading the book, in my mind, when I was thinking about Azeroth, I was thinking that he definitely had, like... A Ziggy Stardust, Bowie, maybe Labyrinth vibe to him. And when I saw the first illustration and I saw the style that he was drawing that the characters and I thought this is definitely how I was picturing the world. And I was 100% right on with this illustration that Barr had done. Yeah, I mean, there's... So there's like a couple... You mentioned it being sort of similar to like a fable or a fairy tale. And I think it's definitely set up like that. There's definitely... Uh, morals and meaning that you're supposed to be teasing out of these stories and i think one of the major ones is this like beauty is a huge recurring thing in the stories like beauty is portrayed as this incredibly powerful force it doesn't have like a moral judgment on it it's not like disney where like you're beautiful so you're good you're ugly so you're evil it's just this thing that like beauty is powerful and the desire that beauty creates is powerful and people will do anything for beauty and some of those things are good and some of those things are bad and it's like at part of Azeron's power part of Azeron's power is just that he is incredibly beautiful and captivating to anyone that sees him well that's what I thought like one of the themes that I wrote down was um sexuality and gender roles and I think that her use of this sort of male beauty as a weapon versus female beauty, which is supposed to be a way to, like in fairy tales, like you said, a way to be good and to save yourself. He kind of play. she plays against that. She has a really beautiful demon and she has a really hideous, plain looking woman who's in, in some way defeats him because, mm-hmm. you know, she refuses to fall in love with him. And, and then there's also the part where the queen who is seeking revenge against him her wish that he grants her is to make her beautiful. And then she realizes that being beautiful doesn't make her any more happy. And in fact, is her downfall at the very end of the story. Yeah. Well, but then she proceeds to take that beauty and use it as a weapon in much the same manner that Azarorn does. But I think the interesting thing with trying to puzzle out the morals from this story is that it, it pulls kind of a trick, I think, in that department. So we go through the first couple books... And each book is split into two parts, too. So we go through the first couple chunks of the story, and it seems like it's setting up this idea that, like, lust and unchecked desire are dangerous and destructive forces. And that if you're, if you resist lust and temptation, then you triumph. Like, we get the story of the brothers with the cursed diamond horde. The one that falls for Zarias, Zarias, that's the, um, 
the queen. The one who falls for her beauty is utterly destroyed, and the one that resists her ends up defeating her and getting one of the few happy endings in the book. But then the very next story that we see, the beginning of book three, we have a character that does completely resist Azarn's beauty. She resists temptation. She doesn't respond to him calling. And her life is destroyed no matter what. And I think what the big moral of the story ends up being is not that, like, being chased is good, but it's the idea that if you act out of love and out of some level of altruism, then you will get some kind of pure victory and, and the closest thing to a happy ending. And if you act out of hate and vengeance and resentment, you will be destroyed. So like all the characters that we see that act out of revenge are defeated and suffer horribly. All the characters that we see that act out of love or altruism, even Azarn himself at the end, who sacrifices himself out of a love for earth and mankind is given some sort of a happy ending. I agree with that. I also think that Azeron is almost like, uh, he's like a trickster. He's like a Loki character. Mm -hmm. He drops into the story after being gone hundreds of years and he creates a little chaos or he causes a little conflict. At one point, he um, forces the Drin who made this magical object to take it into the upper earth, the flat earth, and leave it there so that he could watch the chaos because he likes to go up at night and watch the trouble that he has caused, almost like a trickster. Yeah, I think in a way the story is kind of a meditation on suffering, on the causes of suffering, on the way people respond to suffering, the way suffering changes some people for good or for ill. And we trace that suffering by by specifically following the suffering that is caused directly and indirectly by Azarar's actions. But I think we get... Car- we get ca- Kazir and Zarias, I think, in a way, mirror each other. They're both characters that suffer horribly in their childhood and carry, you know, the scars with them. In Kazir's case, his blindness, and in Zarias' case, her physical deformities. And they both respond to the suffering in opposite ways. She becomes an evil sorcerer queen, and Kazir becomes this almost sort of messianic healer poet figure. And he ends up getting being one of the characters that gets a happy ending yeah i agree with that i liked what i think i liked most about the the book because i had never read any of the books and i don't know if i will continue reading the series i might if i come up if you come across one come of them. across one of them that's a perfect way to say it but what i liked was this really sort of sense of place that she had created like this it's like a geographic place but it has a feeling and a perception and it conveys like an emotion. It's almost like a character in the stories. And I feel like her setting it up so completely in the first book allows the flat earth to become, and the four different layers, the comprising of the earth, to become almost characters in the future stories. And I know that there'll be like, you know, the, the geographic part of the story is important to the atmosphere that she's creating. So I really like that. It almost kind of reminded me of this whole like genus loci, this sort of like um, concept of this like spirit entity that lives in the earth. Mm-hmm. And I know this kind of gets a little new age and weird, but I was thinking a lot about this because there's like um, her earth, her flat earth is almost like itself a spirit that exists. There's four different layers, there's four different personalities of this 
you know, mythos that she's creating and each one of them has almost its own feel and its own entity. And I thought that was like really interesting because you do see some of that coming up like in modern like fantasy. Mm -hmm. Like I don't like in the Dresden Files, that's like a huge part of like the story, the storyline. There's a huge plot line about this genius loci that's actually a spirit that helps Harry Dresden in the books. So I think like a lot of fantasy novels are like embracing that concept. I think it's interesting because she pretty explicitly portrays the earth as being kind of an extension of humanity. So like at the end, when humanity is succumbing to the hate entity and is warring and fighting and dying off, the earth itself starts to crack open and volcanoes start to erupt. And there's this cool imagery where the volcano that's the entrance into the Underearth is the only volcano that's not erupting when Azeron leaves to go confront the hate entity. Well, that's what I think this whole, like, genius loci is. It's kind of like there's a power of magic that's associated with the place. So that is either, like, the actual magic that's in the Earth or it's, like, a guardian, a protector, a ghost. And I think that Azeron is almost like that spirit that he doesn't protect the flat earth but he's so of the flat earth that he is almost like a part of the earth Mm -hmm. and i think that sort of conveyed a lot in the stories that she's telling because even if he's not directly even in the story like the story about the queen and the diamonds you can see that influence that he has on that because they're obsessed with these magical gems and sort of the imagery that the demon king like surrounds himself with is like permeated throughout the whole entire book. And I don't know, have you read more of the books in the series? I haven't read more in this series. I've read other things that she wrote, but I haven't read any of the other. I think Death's, they're all Something's Master. I think Death's Master is the next one. And that's just one story. It's not like a series of interconnected stories the way that this one is. I spoke with someone who had read the entire series and really liked it. And she said that Azeron is the only character from the first book that appears in later stories. So that, I mean, sort, that, of, makes sense. that sort of made me think more that he almost was like that genius loci of the, well, yeah, of he, the flat earth. He and earth are, are, the earth are tied together. Like he, he sacrifices himself and is reborn at the same time. That the earth is reborn and his birth signals the end of the age of innocence. And it's also like idea that like when the earth is dead and barren, so too will be Azarar because he will be alone and he won't have humanity to fuck with anymore, which is all that he wants to do. Yeah, yeah. But I really like the book. I like the atmosphere that she was creating. It, it definitely, like I said before, it had a, like a fairy tale vibe to it. It sort of had like a high fantasy vibe to it but for some reason it also felt very modern mm-hmm. which was interesting because i think like her like her addressing things like sexuality and gender roles and you know the kind of obsession with you know beauty and what's beautiful and what's ugly i think that sort of made it seem more modern mm-hmm. but i really i liked the story well i lot. think it's, it's like it, it's has a very um classical like mythological tone with a more modern for the late 70s at least take on sexuality and interpersonal relationships i thought 
Well, I mean, yeah, it was from the late 70s, and you could tell because there was definitely some fiddly 70s stuff going on. Well, I, the most 70s thing in the whole book is the, the cleaved soul thing. The idea that, like, the soul is male and female, and then when they're split up, the female part of the soul is, like, completely mute and impassive, and the male part of the soul is this, like, wild, destructive force that just lashes out blindly at everything around it and is, like, hedonistic, whereas, like, the isolated female soul is, like, completely chaste and passive, like I said. Like, that feels like a very 70s idea that, like, we we have to unify the masculine and feminine halves of the soul. Not that that's not a thing that's, like, relevant now, but... You yeah, it saying, definitely right? had, like, some kind of Ren Fair vibe going on. Oh, there. very <laughs> Ren Fair. The whole thing is very Ren Fair. <laughs> but if you really, if you're thinking, like, I want some high fantasy from the 70s, this book has, like, the damsel and the evil king. I mean, it has all the parts and, you know, the, the illustrations and even the covers sort of atmospheric and very 70s. And it was just sort of, like... It was of the. It was like a time capsule of the seventies fantasy, which I thought was really great. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. I really like the way that it just like I think that you get to you read book one and you get to book two, and there's this great moment in book two where you realize that like these aren't just stories that are taking place in the same world. They're they're sort of one long story because when Savesh goes. To Earth, as Azarn gives him this silver pipe that's shaped like a snake's head to call him, and it's just like not really referenced after that. He he falls in the ocean and he dies, and they don't bring up the pipe again. And then there's this great moment in book two where Zarius like starts asking lower demons if there's ways to summon Azarn, and then she's like, "Are there tokens he would give someone to call them?" <laughs> and then it's like, "Oh, you realize what she's talking about," and you're like, "Oh, okay." I see what's going on here. Like, I really like that from just, like, a pure writing plot construction standpoint. Right. She, I mean, she, even in the third book, she brings back things from the first couple of stories, which I think is a nice tie. And that's how you sort of get the feeling that this is almost like a mythology of what's going to happen in the world. There's there's this vibe that this might be cyclical. That this might have happened before and might happen again. It was also unclear to me that it was a linear story. I thought maybe some of the stories were happening concurrently, or maybe some of the stories had happened before or after. Yeah, the well, only I, one that sort of came full circle at the end was the rebirth of Azran. Well, it's like all of book, like Savesh's story, continues directly into Kazir's story, and then Zora's Shad's story continues directly into Zoraya's story, which then references. The end of Savesh's story. And then book three calls back to Kazir's story because Azaron relives the vision that Kazir gives him of the dead world and him alone with no one to toy with. And then he's also directly visited by Savesh's spirit, who is like, you know, because he's been dead for a thousand years. So what did what was going through your mind when you were reading this because i was thinking like 70s david bowie i was thinking like jethro tall music like yeah i was something like vashti bunyan <laughs> i was thinking about that um i was thinking a lot about like just sort of because this is the second time i read this so reading it again i was just kind of just like i was picking through and trying to 
to pick, like, puzzle out the influences. Because I think that, like, this necklace made from Ferrazin's tears is, like, the ring in the ring cycle. Like, it's this supernatural... It's made by a dwarf, and it's this supernatural treasure that causes people to fight over it. And then Kazir's story, which I referenced before, is, like, the story of Orpheus going into the underworld. Like, he's, like, a poet, and he literally does go into the underworld. And then... Zorashad is sort of like Alexander the Great, and he's got this chair of uncertainty that he has commoners sit in, and he right. might kill them and he might not. And that reminded me of Vlad the Impaler, which I think was what she was drawing on for that. And then, yeah, I don't know. And then I think it's also like, I don't remember the name of the Mad Queen, the queen who won at Revenge. She almost, like you said, she was almost like Vlad the Impaler. She sort of was like this... Her rage had consumed her so fully. She was almost like the evil stepmother from Sleeping Beauty. And she was like Vlad the Empower. Like her rage consumed her. And her lust for revenge like drove her to like almost to madness. And I think that was sort of... I mean, I thought that was a good character. Because I felt like it, could, it was sort of like her playing again with the gender roles. Of like the the woman is not the damsel in distress, and and even in the story of the two cleaved souls, the female soul goes to the male soul and heals him. Yeah, that's I said. She, oh, she's passive, but she does ultimately end up being the active figure. She's the one that seeks him out. She's the one that saves him well, she's from the illusion that he's trapped. She's in. She's definitely passive, and I think the way that she's able to go to him is that she's so fully consumed with one task, which is to find this lost piece of her soul. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like he is too concerned. He doesn't seem to be aware at all that he's missing half of his soul. She's pining for her other half of her soul and by proxy pining for this man. But he's kind of just like, I like being a swashbuckler and I like killing people and being in a rage and being lustful. And why do people think there's something wrong with that? I think it's like, a, again, sort of her commentary on the differences between men and women, I guess, because he is aware of the pain and the em sorrow and emptiness that he feels from missing half of his soul, but isn't self-possessed enough to examine why he would feel like that and to look for the cause of it and look for something to fix it. He just kind of lives with it and lashes out at people in the world because of it, whereas she is more self-aware and is able to figure out what happened and goes to do something about it specifically. Like, he's more active in that he takes more actions and is more, you know, he's running around fighting and stuff, but he doesn't take any sort of direct actions to solve any problems. I think so. He's forced without direction, where she's purely direction, because she gets to him just by walking straight towards him right. and being helped along the way by people who find her. Like, she's man she's active and sort of passive at the same time. Well, yeah, because I think there's a one part where she comes to a river and she stands there and she's right about to just sort of walk right into the river. And then the ferryman's like, whoa, whoa, we got to help this woman. She's lost a half her soul. Yeah. We got to reunite her with something. And, man, that must have, that, that was a hit song. Everybody knew that <laughs> song about her that that traveling bard <laughs> composed. I know. It was like that. It was like the Jeff Bertol like number one soundtrack because everybody knew that song. But I thought it was fun. I liked it. It was like classic British high fantasy, and I thought it was really a really fun read. 
And I kind of, I like that sort of overt, like, 70s sexuality. And it's kind of, like, unapologetically, like, in your face. Like, these are sexy ladies and macho men. And I thought it was interesting. Yeah. It was definitely, like I said, a time capsule of the of the late 70s. But I think it's, like, a it's an interesting time capsule of the 70s because it's, you know, it's a book that was not written by a straight white dude. And I don't think really was written for straight dudes and i don't think and i think it it gets away with being like exploring sexuality in the way it does because it doesn't have to buy into like um you know because if you think about other fantasy and sci-fi written by dudes from that era there's you know it's more gung-ho it's more masculine or it's trying to be really cerebral and up inside its own head and i think that like you don't this take on sexuality is very 70s, but I feel like a lot of the genre works from that time don't explore it in the way that this one does. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think that's true. I think it's interesting because um, we, I mean, she's a female writer and she's writing from a female perspective, but I feel like she has a good understanding of just sort of human sexuality so that she can write this sort of, this these these stories where... Some of the characters are obviously more fluid in sexuality and with their gender roles than some of the other characters. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, are, we, are we done with that? Do you have anything else to say about it? I think I'm done specifically with this novel. I'm sure we'll come up again with some fantasy and you know high fantasy stories to talk about. But it's a very short book, so it kind of... And, and it... It's written in a way because the stories are interlinked and they flow together that you want to continue reading it. So it's less like a group of short stories and more like linked stories. It's like a myth cycle. Right. I think, is a good I think way that's a good way to describe it because that's definitely what it is. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to announce the book for next month? Yeah. So now for something completely different. Uh, next month, we're going to be reading The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, which is a hard-boiled detective novel, one of my favorite things. And it is the first book, first full-length novel that Chandler wrote. And it stars Philip Marlowe, his super macho, super intense, dark, flawed detective. Who, of course, was played perfectly by Elliot Gould. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, that's why I picked it, because I thought it had a lot of interesting things that I thought would be fun to talk about. One is detective novels, which I really like, and we don't talk about a lot. So I, I do read more than Stephen King novels. I love, um, especially early detective novels. Um, Chandler wrote this based on two short stories that he had written previously, which were published in Pulp magazines, which was a huge thing for detective literature in the early 1930s, which we can talk about. Um, it's the birth of the hard-boiled crime novel, which a lot of people say is one of the true American literary genres that was created by American writers. So we'll talk about that. It's the beginning of the anti-hero as a character in a novel. So there's a lot of flawed detectives that come up. There's a lot of... Um, dark and brooding past and there's mysteries to be solved so i think like it's going to be interesting to talk about the birth of the detective novel and we can obviously talk about earlier the earlier british detectives and sherlock holmes but i think talking about like 
the American detective sort of gives a point of view. They add something fresh and different to the mystery and detective genre, which starts to really become prevalent in the late 1930s. All right, cool. So, so get out your fedora, get your cigarette, get ready. You're going to crack the case. Don't get out your fedora. Don't get out don't, your fedora. Don't wear a fedora and listen to our podcast. This is I'm taking a stand. This is a hardline anti-fedora podcast. But what if I'm a hard-boiled detective and I need that fedora? I mean, okay. Let me be more specific. Fedoras are fine. The thing that everyone calls a fedora that is actually a trilby, bad. Well, yeah, I specifically said we are not talking about British crime novels. We'll solely be talking about American crime novels. So there's no reason to put that trilby on at all. No, don't do it. So um, shout out to George Saunders. Oh yeah, he won, what did he? What happened? <laughs> he won the Man Booker. Yes, he was only the second American to win that literary prize, and of course, it's one of my favorite novels of the year, Lincoln in the Bardo, which I highly recommend. Yeah, go back to episode two. You can hear us talk about it. Well, I didn't read it, so it's mostly you can hear uh, me be told about it and well, make a bunch of dumb jokes. I told you something that was good for you, and you blatantly this disregarded it now you have to be like everybody else and go out and get your copy of lincoln and abardo and read it should have got in on the ground floor before it became popular i had uh had other things to read you know i had to read super mail that's a book <laughs> i read that's like a french absurdist novel okay well then you're <laughs> excused the only excuse for not reading george saunders is you're reading french absurdist novels that's a book i don't i don't we don't need to talk about it a ton but uh, that is one of the horniest books I've ever read. And I was like, huh. afterwards I looked up the author and he was a French symbolist poet. And I was like, oh, that explains it. Yeah, I think <laughs> those like French symbolist poets are just sort of like randy goats that just run around. They're like pan from Jitterbug Perfume. They French symbolism was invented so that dudes didn't have to say vagina over and over again. <laughs> They needed an excuse to come up with flowery descriptions, often literally flowery descriptions of ladies' private parts. So they invented a whole movement of poetry. Well, thank goodness Henry Miller comes around later on and says, let's, you know, let's cut the middleman out and just get right to the juicy bits. Yep. He, you know, he loved those juicy bits. So is there anything you've been reading that you want to talk about or a topic you got? (laughs) Speaking of weird sexual books, I wanted to talk about this book that I had read, To Your Scattered Bodies Go, as part of the Hugo Award list. Um, I read it, Philip Jose Farmer, and it's a very um, popular book. A lot of people know about it. There was a movie, and there's a TV series. There's lots of sort of... Um, was there a movie? I think there was just a TV series. It was like a miniseries. Yeah. It was a made-for-TV movie. But anyway, the story is, is that there... All of these people are resurrected in this world that's pretty much just a river and a river valley. And all of these people from different time periods are resurrected at the same time. And then I thought it was really... Have you read this book? Yes, I read it. I thought it was really weird. It was like an interesting commentary on society and like history But I thought it was very strange that immediately they're resurrected in this mysterious world. And the first thing they start doing is having sex with each other and fighting each other. And it was like kind of a weird sort of, like, I had no idea what he was trying to say to people 
with this novel. It was very confusing. Well, part of it is like it is a attempt I, to do a sci-fi version of a Bangsian fantasy. Do you know what that is? No. So there's a writer named John Kendrick Bangs, and he wrote this book. Let me pull up the full title. It's called A Houseboat on the River Styx, being some account of the divers' doings of the associated shades, which is a story where the premise is that everybody that dies gets resurrected, um, or it goes to the River Styx, and so it sort of takes place around the, the river and with the Charon ferrying people. And all the characters, it's a bunch of connected stories and all the characters are figures from history and mythology. I can see that could definitely influence this. Um, I thought it was really funny. I was talking about this novel at work with someone who also loves science fiction novels. And we were talking specifically about this novel. And his he said exactly to me that this book puts the sex in sci-fi. And that until the time the farmer starts to write... There really wasn't a lot of sexuality in sci-fi, and he starts to put in this sort of, um, this, you know, the sort of like racy sexual parts of books that you would find like in literature or romance or popular fiction. Because I guess like sci-fi had stayed away from like having sex in their books. I don't know if this is true or not, but I kind of felt like it was because some of the earlier Hugo Award winners have no, either no relationships in them or they don't have any sexual relationships but i thought this book was kind of really racy for the time that it was written yeah well okay so i think that um you kind of get to there's two kinds of sci-fi writers really and they can break them down into uh stem majors and english majors and I think that a lot of early sci-fi is ri- was written by science guys. Not, you know, guys who were interested specifically in the science part of the science fiction. I mean, you see, like, Asimov was, like, a scientist who wrote science fiction. And I think later on, around the time of the 70s, so there was stuff before that. You get people who come from more of a literary background or just don't come from a science background or are interested in science fiction as a specifically artistic form and they don't necessarily care about the hard science behind it or exploring even specifically issues related to science and i think philip jose farmer is kind of like one of the major like godfathers of the english major sci-fi writer that's interesting yeah because i kind of think he he like other than having like the sexy parts and the parts where they have caveman epic river battles, which was like the action part of it. Yeah. I thought that he really was like trying to address like this concept of religion and this like sense of personhood and like the role people pay, play like in society and what people, why they exist. I mean, he's trying to like answer these high level like philosophical questions in the construct of this book. But all I could think about was like, he had like a, a lot of really dirty parts, and then he also had these like really graphic fight scenes that he was. Well, I, th- I think the book is kind of is it is specifically an exploration of human nature, where it's like they're not like tabula rasa blank blank slates. These are all, you know, they're figures from history because we have some kind of understanding already of what their sort of personality and goals and philosophy is. So, like, what happens when you just drop them all? into a situation where they're all on a level playing field 
and they don't they have all of their memories and personality from before but they don't have any sort of material advantages like what what arises from that soup of sort of goals and perspectives and this book is like one take on it which is that like a nazi takes over and fights a caveman (laughs) (laughs) well even like the characters even the characters that were from history and literature they were kind of like weird random unrelated characters that he put together in this world and he was kind of like let's put this guy let's put goring and mark twain and and uh you know Burton, you know, the explorer and the woman that Alice in Wonderland is based on. Let's put all these guys together and then see, like, what kind of crazy stuff happens. I mean, they're making, like, bows out of, like, fish, like, spines. And there's kind of, like, this weird, like, primitive culture that's developing. It's primitive, but it still has, like, modern, like... um, Because it's people with primitive resources, but modern minds... For the most part. I don't know. It was just, it was a very strange, I mean, I thought when I read Roger Zelazny, I thought, okay, that's strange. But when I read this, I actually thought, this is actually weirder than that. Like that I could understand. Like that was kind of like very psychedelic. And, you know, I was kind of like, I was into that because like the imagery was so like funky and you kind of got like involved in the mythos. And what was that one? That was... God, God of Light. Lord of Light. Lord of Light. But this kind of was just, it was just so weird. I felt like it was like, almost like a Conan story or written in the style of like those pulp action books. Well, he's actually, Jose Farmer fucking loves pulp stuff. Uh, we've talked about him before actually on the podcast when we were talking about mythos and world building. Because one of the other things that he's really known for is this Wold Newton universe. Do you remember me yes, talking about this? Yes, I do. And he specifically took, you know, these older Pope stories like Tarzan and um, Doc Savage and, you know, tried to, to update them or to write a coherent narrative out of their uh, scattered mythology go. Yeah, I kind of felt like he, like, even just as a balance to Tanith Lee, this book was written in 1971 and it was almost like, Farmer was taking like the pulp and boy action novels and rewriting them for like modern times of modern times being the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it felt very 70s. It felt very like 70s sci fi. But it was kind of like it was a good novel. It was well written and it was very action y, but it sort of really off put me on these like I didn't like any of the characters. And I kind of, and I, at the end, I didn't even care what was down the river. You know, I didn't care that they were going to build a giant river boat and go down the river. I just, I didn't care because I felt like they were so weird. And I felt like if I was in a situation like that, I was a surprising number of them didn't care about what had happened to them. Like they didn't even like, even Burton who had some sort of inner knowledge about how he had come to be in the river world. Other people were just like, this is great. You know, and if you, if, and he kept killing himself and coming back and killing himself and coming back because he kept resetting his own life. And finally, the like sentient beings had to be like, whoa, put the brakes on. You only have like 200 lives. We can only reset you 200 times. And you've already committed suicide like 149 times. So it was kind of, it was a very, like, a very strange book to sort of try to process. Yeah, no, I can get with that. I mean, it's not one of my favorites. 
that I've ever read. But uh, yeah, no, it's real weird. I don't, I don't know what this, to say. Like, I, I agree with you. I don't think that the characterization is super strong in it. I think the ideas are more interesting than the people are, at least the way that he writes them. But the whole time I was reading it, I kept, I didn't see this. I didn't see this made-for-TV movie or anything else that they had, these other things that were around the story. But the whole time I was, like, reading it, I kept thinking about, like, Westworld for some reason. Like, it almost remind. I was thinking to myself, are they, like, androids? Or are they robots? I mean, what's, what's going on with these people? But they were just sort of... I don't even know if they were clones. Like, they were just made... Yeah. And put in this river world for some weird experiment that I couldn't figure out if it was like an experiment about them reconstructing society or how they would act if they were out of like their normal. See, the way I, I, I don't think I read any of the later ones. I think I only read the first one. I read other stuff by, see, this is my thing. I never finish series. I always <laughs> read the first one and I'll read other stuff by the writer, but I, I never, like Dune is like the only series I've ever Read from start all the way from start to finish, but I sort of thought about it where it was like they're farmer, like their goals in doing this are the same thing as farmers, which is that like wouldn't it be interesting if we did this and we put these people together in this situation? Wouldn't that be interesting? And like it, it kind of is. It's interesting, but it's creepy and weird and off-putting. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's some of the like world parts that he created were super strange. Like they were born, they come back, they have no body hair. Nope. And then, <laughs> then they can't grow mustaches, which makes Burton upset because he had a big giant, like eight, you know, 1800s bushy mustache and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then some of the, and then at some point they gave him clothes to wear, but they were just sort of like strips of fabric that, and they didn't tell them how to wear their clothes, so the cave people were wearing them like hats. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with them. There's a weird thing. Okay. And then they gave them food, and then the food just arrives in this tin, like, kind of like a lunchbox that you put on this stone, and it comes, and then you get everything that they think you want, plus marijuana, plus LSD. Well, yeah. Plus, like, a lipstick, and they everybody gets lipstick, and then the cave people who are wearing the lipstick, it's just... There was some, always some, there's weird things about old sci-fi that I don't really understand. Um, one of them is this ESP thing. For some reason, a bunch of sci-fi writers thought that we were going to get psychic powers eventually. Like, I don't know why they thought that. But like, there's a bunch of sci-fi stories where it's just taken as a given that people in the future have ESP. There's also a weird body hair thing. I don't know what the hang up with body hair was. I guess that was like a thing in like the 60s and 70s was like, Dudes with chest hair and, like, ladies not shaving their legs. There was some kind of fixation on body hair. Because there's this comic from this... I think it's from the 60s. Let me actually look it up. Yeah, it's from the 60s called Magnus Robot Fighter. And one of the weird things in that is that there's, like, a stratified society where, like, there's... The upper class lives higher up and then there's a lower class that lives on the bottom. But one of the differences between the classes is that the people up high... Like, laser off all their body hair. And the people who live on the lower level, the gofs, like gopher, have body hair and are, like, proud of their body hair. (laughs) And I never got it. But, like, it comes up in other stuff, too. I don't know what the hang-up with body hair was. But that was definitely a thing. But it was like, you create this, you're, like, an alien and you create this world as an experiment. And 
you don't think about like the clothes that people are going to be wearing, but you think about like giving ladies lipstick. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I He's, think like, they're focused like... on the weirdest, like like a little kid. Like how do they poop? Where do they go to bathroom? <laughs> like like. Like that's in the story. Like he he wonders about those things, but he doesn't like wonder about like the meaning of like having these aliens creating this world. Well, yeah, but I'm saying if you take that that farmer is the alien, then why would he worry about why he was doing it? He knows why he did it. I think the thing with like it kind of makes sense if you take it from the perspective of like outside observers looking at humanity. You're like, what are humans like? They like to eat. They gotta poop. They, most of them wear clothes. If you look at all of human history, they're mostly wearing clothes. So they should have clothes. And it's like, it looks like the female ones like to put stuff on their face sometimes. <laughs> I guess. Other ones do that too. But for the most of human history, it was just the female ones that were doing it for some reason. Uh, so like, we'll give them that. This body hair seems like a mess to take care of. I don't want to clean up all of that. So we'll just get rid of it. <laughs> But I thought it was really weird the one plot point where they they all got Italian food and some of the people got upset about it. And it was like, if you're an alien, like, why don't you just give them, like, some kind of, like, nutrient paste? Like, why do you have to recreate, like, well, Olive Garden? If you math, math, if you do the math, it turns out that the ultimate average enjoyable food is Italian food. Everybody, most people like it. Well, if more time was spent discussing these marijuana cigarettes and this LSD dream gum that you could chew on and have like some kind of episode. I love that he was like, they would obviously they would give you weed. <laughs> it's very good. Of course you would have it in in the space experiment. Yeah. No, it's a very weird book. And he's a very weird writer. I like him a lot, but Of course. I can I can see that that you would. But I was just kind of like and I don't feel like I, I read a lot of different kinds of things. And I don't feel like it could be like a square. Like, I don't get it. Mm. I just thought like every component of the story was weird and disconnected. But for some reason, he put them all in the same story and created well, a very I, weird. I, I, I'll tell you what the real answer for why the book is the way it is. It's because it's for the same reason that there was a lot of weed and LSD dream gum in the book. Because that's what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Like that explains a lot. That explains a lot. But speaking of ESP, the next book I'm reading for the Hugo Award list is Mark Clifton's They Rather Be Right. And the story starts with a boy who has ESP. That's a um, a, a super intelligent AI story, right? Yeah, yeah. It's got a, a brain whose name is Bossy, which I'm enjoying. It's a terrible name for a a computer, a supercomputer. But it kind of fits with, like, that's what somebody would have named a computer in, like, the 60s or the 70s. I think so. Like, what's the what's the chess computer called? Big Blue. Yeah, so, yeah. Deep Blue? Deep Blue. Yeah, they have dumb names. Okay. Computers have dumb names. ENIAC. Well, that was an interesting experiment in the Hugo Award winning. So how yeah. deep are you into this list now? I am... I only have about 20 books left, and a bulk of them are from the 90s and onward. Okay. So I've been re- trying to read the older stories first, the older novels first, to see if it sort of sets this sort of genre kind of rainbow. Like when I read the Edgar Awards, I could you can see like a style of writing that would develop over a couple of years of awards 
So you can move into sort of like, um, as time went on, this style of writing, you know, different types of mystery novels and what became popular. But it seems like with the Hugo Awards, it's kind of like in the early part of the awards, there's a lot of sort of technology makes us afraid, um, space travel. And then you get into sort of the world, the weird 60s and 70s kind of like fantasy blended with sci-fi and then towards the 80s you get into sort of like once again technology and giant corporations are evil and then in the 90s you sort of get into a lot of like I guess you're back to like high fantasy merged with sci-fi so I'm kind of like interested in reading some of that stuff yeah you're gonna get you're gonna get to read the Hyperion yeah that's I think that I'm looking at the list now that's the 1990 winner that's one of my my favorites, and that's very much like kind of a successor to some of these weirder, more sort of literary-minded science fiction, where, to the point where that's literally like sci-fi Canterbury Tales. Exactly. And so I think that's sort of where it's going, and then moving into the 2000s, you're back into sort of um, more science-based sci- sci-fi, so I'm interested in also reading that, but... It's been sort of interesting because I'm getting a good overview. There's some books that I really, really liked, and I'm glad that I either reread or read for the first time, like The Canticle for Leibowitz is something I hadn't read. And I was glad that I read that, and I was glad to read Normancer again and some of the other books. But some of the weirder sort of 50s and 60s sci-fi, I'm kind of taking it almost as like a snapshot of the culture and the writing at that time. Some of the stuff I don't feel like really stands the test of time, but some of them are definitely like classics. Did you read Dream Snake yet? No, I haven't. That's so, a real weird one. So that's there's some kind there's some kind of, but that was almost like when I read the the Edgar Awards and there was that one that was like Peregrine and it was a a murder novel about like a serial killer who trains a peregrine falcon to kill people and there's kind of like weird anomalies that win the awards and i think that some of the things on the hugo were like that isn't there like one harry potter book one right yes but just one and then and neil gaiman won for the graveyard book he also won for american gods american gods yeah i think there's over time the awards get more open to fantasy in general i think for a long time it was almost exclusively sci-fi stuff winning and the fantasy books were always stuff it was kind of still kind of tinged with science fiction and then i think over time you get more pure fantasy novels start to win the award like jonathan strange and mr norrell right. has a hugo award yeah and i think it's interesting because it's sort of it shows the growth and the like i know george r, r. martin was very he's very much concerned with the hugo awards and he's also concerned with the broadening of like the genre of like fantasy and sci-fi and sort of even urban fantasy. So you can see his start to see his like influence on like the selections becoming broader and not, like you said, not technology based sci-fi becoming fantasy or a blending of even both of them. But I feel like reading these lists, like especially this genre specific list sort of gives you a broad, almost like, um, I don't know what the term is for when you read, like, a survey. It's almost like a survey of the genre. Yeah, well, I mean, you definitely, with stuff like the awards things, you really get to see how 
at least from a critical perspective, how the genre evolves over the years and what things people, they start to value and which things fall away. So you get to, like you were saying, you get to see, you see the rise of these, you know, weirder figures like Zelazny and Farmer. And then, you know, you go, you get, you fall into the cyberpunk era and stuff. Well, I think it's also interesting too, because you start to see some of the later writers, you can see the influence of the earlier writers yeah. and you can say, okay, this, you know, this is clearly referenced from this novel. And I think that's interesting because it sort of reflects on the selection of the awards and how pivotal they are and how important they are into the history of the genre. And they come back and the story motifs come back. So I think that's that's interesting. Cool, cool. So do you have anything to share? Anything you're reading or watching or thinking about that you want to share with us? I've been I've been reading a bunch of short stories because we we launched another sub podcast about short stories. Outside of the um Outside of the books that we've been re- picking for the episodes, I haven't really been reading any novels. I pretty much tap- petered out on my quest to read every comic published by Valiant Comics, which I thought was going to happen. What could possibly have gone wrong with that? A person who cannot finish a series, or even a three-series novel <laughs> in a novel sequence. I got pretty deep in. I was like... uh I was like 19 issues into the earliest published ones. Like I had read a pretty ridiculous amount of comics by the time I started to peter out. So I, I chalk that up as a win. <laughs> I would have hoped to at least get to the point where Jim Shooter left the company, but I, I didn't get that far. Well, maybe you can pick it up again I, in, the I win- probably in the will. winter when it's stay inside and read a book weather. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to get into the literary question? Okay, so we were talking about with the Knights Master, we were talking about this atmosphere and creating this sort of environment about the in the flat earth, which got me thinking about this um, literary device called the place as person or place as character, which is more common in nonfiction. And I was thinking about this, like how certain worlds become so important in the storyline that they actually become characters. And I was thinking like about where almost like the scenery, the setting becomes so important that it actually becomes a character. So I was thinking about like places like Narnia and Earthsea and Middle Earth where the world is just as famous and important as the stories. Okay. So, like, the characters and things like that. Like, you can't have, like, a Lord of the Rings without Middle-earth. So, I was kind of thinking, like, how important is this concept of character as a place in sort of sci-fi and fantasy novel? I mean, it depends on what you're going for, right? Like, what's the focus of your series? I think if your series is focused, or if your stories are focused on the setting, then I think it's incredibly important. If you can't nail down... You know, like a consistent vibe and feeling for your setting, and that's all that's connecting the pieces of your story, then like it's gonna feel empty and flat. And I think, you know, that happens in a lot of like more amateurish sci fi and fantasy writing is that like 
you know, they, their world is just like built on cliche or something and it doesn't feel authentic and it doesn't feel like a thing unto itself. And so you can't really connect with it in the way you do with, you know, more expertly crafted worlds. And I, I think that like, when I think about the setting as a character, the thing that comes to my mind is Batman. Well, that's exactly what I, in, in my mind, the way I described it to myself, like if someone said, what does this mean? My mind was, you could say, this book takes place in a city. But then something like Batman, you'd be like, this takes place in Gotham. Like everybody knows Gotham. Like they know Derry, they know Innsmouth, they know like Arkham, they know like Mississippi University. Like they, there's places that are known for being just as important as the characters that almost like live in those places yeah those stuff like gotham and Derry and arkham through having so many stories set in them you start to develop this like understanding of like what kinds of things happen in these places and what kinds of stories can be told there and what does it feel like so that you eventually get to the point where it just becomes instinctive like you know the second that something happens somebody shows up in gotham you're like well you know something horrible is going to happen to this person and then Batman will show up and punch them. And it's like the second that, like, you mentioned Derry or Arkham, you know, like, okay, something weird and cosmic and horrifying is happening. This, the atmosphere is going to be off and creepy. Well, that's what I was thinking about, like, especially, like, the um, lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. As soon as they part those fur coats, you in your mind know what Narnia looks like. Like, it is so much a part of their stories and the time and the change in the weather and what happens in the country sort of is in your mind. It's, like, iconic to it. Yeah, so when we were talking about world building versus mythos uh, way back in episode one? I think so. I remember saying that what I thought was that world building was about systems and rules and I think that this idea of like this setting as a person or as a character is kind of, it's kind of where we see the interplay of mythos and world building. Where it's, a setting becomes a character when there are consistent rules for it, but they're like non-diegetic rules. So it's like, it's, a setting becomes a character because when you know Specifically how it works, but not in the sense of like, oh, I know how the money works here, which is the example I always use. But it's like, I know that in Gotham, the wicked are punished by Batman. I know that, you know, in Derry, traumatic things happen and then the characters carry them with them for their entire life. It's like, you know, the narrative rules of the place is when it becomes a character. Essentially, that's that's the personality of the place, is the narrative rules of it. I think I think that's a good way to explain it, because I was also thinking about, like, Wonderland, from Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And that is a world that it is own character. And other writers have actually taken that world and created new stories using just sort of the constructs of what Carol had made in his own world, which is Wonderland. Like the Wizard of Oz, exactly is another one. So like Oz is a is a fully real is a world that is a character, I would say. And what makes it a, a functioning world is that I know the geography. Like I know 
where the country of the Munchkins is in relation to the Emerald City. But what makes it a character is that I know what a story set in Wonderland should feel, or in Oz or Wonderland, should feel like. I think that's true because, like, when you're reading the story and you get to the poppy field and they have to go through the poppy fields and the poppy fields make them sleepy, you're never really told who owns the poppy fields, who takes care of them, what, you know, in what land do they belong. They're almost like the poppy fields are the character that's interacting with the other characters and, you know, impacting the story. Instead of just being like, they run through a meadow of flowers, you know, you kind of get that sort of special part of the story that's made better by the setting that Bomb creates. Yeah, if we go back to the, to the Flat Earth thing, I think the thing that makes that, it matters way more that I understand that in this world, vengeance destroys the person seeking it than it is that I know, like, how, what, what the, like, line of succession in the kingdom is. I think that's, I mean, I think George R. R. Martin does a great job with Restoros because that's almost like, in its, it's almost like Middle Earth in that it's, an important part of the stories. Those stories couldn't take place in any other place other than Westeros. And I think the sort of different parts of the nations that he built impact the story. Yeah, but I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Like, there's plenty of world building in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, we know how the Bank of Essos works and the relationships between all the houses. We know about the food. Yeah, but what makes it a, it setting a character is that, like, I know that if a guy starts acting too noble, he's probably going to get his head chopped off. <laughs> like, and that's like a consistent personality trait that the setting itself has beyond any character. I mean, it has that trait because of the choices that the characters make, but it's still consistent to that world. They're like, this is how it operates, you know? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think a story is made richer by the character's interacting with the setting as opposed to saying like um this is a book that takes place in new orleans it's like jim butcher's dresden files they take place in modern chicago but the chicago that harry dresden lives in is not like the chicago that you can go and visit it's kind of like its own version of chicago which is so important for the the story the stories couldn't happen if it wasn't in this Jim Butcher designed version of Chicago that Harry Dresden lives in. Yeah. I'm trying to think of examples of like fully realized worlds that don't still don't feel like characters to me. Like there's got to be an example of like a world where I you understand pretty well how it works, but there's no consistent like philosophy to its stories. I get that kind of feeling a lot of times when I read historical fiction especially sort of this mashup fiction where it's like you know it's Sherlock Holmes and he's set in this different time period I feel like taking Sherlock Holmes out of his Victorian time period makes Sherlock Holmes not interact with his environment in a way that's sort of more realized because that sort of smoky Victorian you know London that Sherlock Holmes lives in mm -hmm. but like things like when I when I read The Alienist by Callum Carr with like it's set in New York and Theodore Roosevelt solves a murder mystery it kind of felt like okay New York is just New York and he just solves the murder mystery I don't know if that really is a good example but it kind of felt like a lot of times like when they have historical 
characters and they try to tell a new story, they don't really connect as well with the environment where the characters originally came from. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm, I was trying to think of more specifically, like, what I was imagining, like, in my mind, a set, a set, something that would be a fully realized world, but not a character, would be something where there are multiple stories set in it, but they run the gamut of, like, genres and tones, and they don't really have, like, a consistent style. I can't really think of that. I guess some, some like, shared settings would maybe be like that. Maybe the Marvel Universe is a setting that's not really a character, because you can have, like, a dark, gritty Punisher story... Where it's all life and death and everyone dies and then you can have, like, Squirrel Girl running around. I think that that's how I I kind of think of those things as almost like they're, like, circles and there's all little circles that are next to each other. And they're, like, kind of, like, concurrent play Mm -hmm. where they don't cross over. They sort of just are existing in their own little pockets. Yeah, but I think if you do that enough... That becomes its own character trait. Like, I actually do think the Marvel Universe is a character. And part of its character trait is that it can be simultaneously, like, literally simultaneously grim and depressing and wacky and lighthearted. And those stories are happening, like, a couple blocks from each other. Like, it's entirely conceivable that the wacky Squirrel Girl story where she's, like, I don't know, fighting a robot that looks like a chipmunk. She could walk three blocks and, like, walk behind the Punisher who's shooting a mob boss. I think, in my mind, if it if it's not a, a good enough example of the character, the place as a character, but it's a good novel, then in my mind, I don't even acknowledge that the scenery is part of the story. So it's kind of like... Like, it just becomes a backdrop. Yeah, like, oh, it was a book that was set in the 1800s. It was a book that was set in the... Oh yeah, Austra- there's Australian minefields, or you know, so it's kind of like it's the setting and the scenery, and that's where the characters interact. But this is something different. This is where the characters and the scenery interact and sort of create like a synergy that makes the story more rich and com- you know complex. I I, I I understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think then there's tons of examples of that where they're just like where the setting is just a backdrop where it doesn't really matter i mean that's kind of the case with like unless it spends a lot of time you know focusing on its sense of place then almost any just sort of one-off story you could say is is a world where the char- where the setting is not a character well that's why i think like we we talk about like what makes time travel successful and unsuccessful as a genre and i think if you have a time travel novel and you don't create a good sense of place then that makes it unsuccessful because the fact that you're going back in time, you're saying, hey, we're going back in time. Look more closely at this scene that we're creating. And if they can't sort of make that space seem more rich, instead of just being like, oh, now it takes place in the Victorian times, and before that it was in modern New York City. It's the McDonald's test. This is the thing that I came up with. My friend and I were watching Kroll, the fantasy movie. And we were talking about fantasy movies and, and, or just like, you know, fantasy and sci-fi movies. And I said that I think the way that I judge whether or not, like, they're good is if I can imagine the characters walking away and going to McDonald's, then you've messed up with your setting. Like, 
it's just becomes a set of props and it doesn't right. feel like a complete world. So like crawl fails the McDonald's test. I feel like I can imagine Liam Neeson going and getting a Big Mac, but like Lord of the Rings, their setting feels really rich and full. And I can't even imagine Bilbo going and getting a burger. But you know what? It just like a light bulb. It just like shone on the top of my head. I think this is the reason why I did not like the Dark Tower. Because that world seems so phony. Yeah. It did not seem part of the story. And that's why it was even less believable when they went into modern times. Yeah. It's, it's like things that fail this, the, the, it doesn't feel like the setting exists outside of the frame of the camera or whatever it's talking about. Like, I think the thing with the time travel thing is like if you, a bad time travel story, if I go back in time, to the 1800s, it doesn't feel like the rest of the 1800s is happening outside of the action we're focusing on right now. Like, you don't believe that the character could turn around and walk and go meet Ulysses S. Grant because it doesn't feel real. And I think that was the thing with that Dark Tower movie. It didn't, it didn't feel like any of this mattered besides when the camera was looking directly at it. It didn't feel like alive. What is your best Right off the top of your head, example of the best scene, the best place setting as a character. Right off the top of my, I you know I'm I I bring it up a lot. I'm gonna say Discworld. That's a good example. I think and to get more specific, the city of Ankh-Morpork, which is like the setting of a lot most of the novels. Like, if for as ridiculous as it is, it's so packed with like rich details and relationships. That I can 100% imagine that, like, you know, even though Terry Pratchett's dead and he's not writing any more stories, all that stuff is still going on. All the narrative machines that he set up are still churning without him there to turn the crank. See, that's a good example. And we were talking about American Gods, and American Gods is set in the United States. That scene doesn't seem as real and as integrated into the story as other scenes and settings that Neil Gaiman had created. Mm-hmm. I mean, like in the Graveyard book, we talked about that earlier. That graveyard is part of the story. It's not just a scene. It, you know, mm-hmm. what happens and what happens to the ghost in that story is sort of woven into the scenery and into the story and the movement of the story in a way that, you know, the United States in the American gods, that's almost, that's just a setting. And like you said, this world is almost like it's its own world and it's a part of the stories. Like you can't take the characters out of this world. Yeah. That's why there's a disc world RPG and there is an American gods one. Well, well, also American gods came after that was a big thing. But the more I think about, like, the components about settings, especially for sci-fi and fantasy, which is what I'm focusing on in my reading list, the more I realize how important this sort of concept of world building and mythos and the characters, a sense of place and scenery versus characters, how important it is, especially when you're creating a series. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that Tanith Lee does really well is her flat earth is a character you know, there's four emotions in the different layers of her world. And she has this genius loci, which is Asran. And she creates this sort of, like, you when you read, when you want to read the other stories, you're like, okay, what's going on in this world? 
you know, so that makes it sort of more complex and rich and fuller. Well, one of the things that she does, which is really important to crafting a sort of setting like this, is she gives a sense of, like, history. Like, there was stuff happening before, and there's stories and myths that are referenced throughout. Like, you you feel like that you're just coming into, like, a slice of the history of this world. Whereas I think, like, weaker settings kind of have this sort of last Thursday-ism to them. Where, like, you just imagine that it just popped into existence when the story started. And you don't really, you can't really imagine, like, oh, what was happening, like, ten years ago in this? And I think that that's, like, going back to uh, George R. R. Martin in Game of Thrones. Like, that's one of the things he does really well is that there's a super rich, like, thousands of years of history that we get puzzled out in bits and pieces throughout the story that make it feel like a real concrete world. I think that's one of the reasons why I actually liked Jurassic Park, you know, the novel, the TV, the movie that, you know, that's different from the book. But I think like while you were reading Jurassic Park, you got the sense of the like world that they were building, this island and what was happening. And it's the same thing like this world, like, you know, once they leave that like that island in your mind is still churning and evolving and things are happening. You know what I mean? So you're kind of like the, the story is better because that island with the dinosaurs on it exists and it's flushed out and it's a part of the story. Yeah. It feels like it. I mean, he talks about chaos theory and stuff, but it, it feels like a, a, a fully realized ecosystem that he set up and he's dropped the characters into but you could have dropped characters into it at any point and had a story. And like once they're gone, well, you get glimpses of that in the novel that you don't really get in the movie where he tells you that like, yeah, some of these dinosaurs got off the island and they're doing this and they're, they have to send people in to wipe out nests of velociraptors in South America. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's almost a great example of like a cat, a, place as a character that's also encroaching into the modern and into your world sort of giving it a fuller dimension i've written about this before but i think that jurassic park is has like a really weird and underrated sense of world building like there's a world there beyond the dinosaur island where it's like subtle biopunk because this is a world that's perfected cloning and genetic engineering, and you know that InGen aren't the only people that have it, but we never really get to see, like, what else that means in that, like, the other implications of the technology. We only really get to see it in regards to dinosaurs, which is very weird, but it's I kind of like that about it. I think it's interesting because I'm thinking that you're trying to tell me that Jurassic Park is a sci-fi novel. It is. I think that's I think that's a really interesting take on the whole on the whole novel. But it's like it's it's there's like a secret secondary world setting in Jurassic Park that never really gets referenced. That's like it's just kind of there. Like he 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 brings it up in the beginning and it has to exist for the story to happen, but is like never really explored in any depth. Well, that's how I felt like like reading Neuromancer. Like, I just wanted like twenty stories that were set in that bar. Like, I just wanted yeah. the story from every character that was sitting in that bar, and I wanted to know more about the bartender. I just wanted to know like more about like 
the world that that he was building. It was almost like Philip K. Dick, like you wanted to know like more about the world that he was creating. Yeah, I think Neuromancer is an incredible example of that because you can imagine in Neuromancer, like pulling the camera back and moving like twenty feet in any direction, and there's cool shit happening that there you could be reading a story about and would be worth it. But you know, you're not because it's just focusing on these specific characters and their problems. But like that world is like super well realized. Yeah, and I think maybe like when I talk about the rise and fall of Dodo, the Neil Stevenson novel that he co-wrote with another writer which i can't remember her name off the top of my head that was a time travel novel where the time travel part was not fully fleshed out like you really didn't get sort of a rich understanding of the current world that they were living or where they went back in time you know he spent 75 pages talking about the technology to get you to time travel very little time talking about what it was like when they went back to like the time periods that they went back to. There's so the last thing I want to say about this is there's a um, there's a tabletop RPG which I bring up a lot. I bring up comic books and I bring up tabletop role playing games a lot. But there's this game called Dungeon World, which is um, it's like it's supposed to feel like Dungeons and Dragons. But one of the the imperatives that they give the person running the game is to draw maps but leave blanks. And I think that's a big part of making your setting feel real. I think a lot of people fuck up by filling in the entire map. So it starts to feel artificial. And I think as a writer, one of the, the advice I would give somebody who's creating a, a secondary world setting is just obliquely reference some shit. Like, but don't really explain it. Like, uh, I'm writing a story right now. And in the story, I make a reference to a character being born on the moon and the moon being the eye of his dead father. And it's like, I don't explain that. And I think that's for all the better because that leaves you to like, oh, there's this weird history and mythology that I don't know about. If you knew it, if I explained exactly the, how he got from the moon to the earth and why the moon is his dad's eye, I think it would feel cheaper. Right. That makes sense. Because that's how, like, the real world works. Like, you don't know exactly how everything works and happens. You don't know exactly how everyone got here. Some people just show up and they're there. And, like, you know they came from somewhere. But, like, they don't give you the, your, their whole life story the second you meet them. Exactly. Well, that's interesting. So, like, I think some settings fail from being underdeveloped and feeling like set dressing. And some settings fail from being overdeveloped and feeling like guidebooks. Yeah, and I think a really good setting, especially a character, a place as a character, walks that very fine line. And I think there are some really great examples of novels that do that, especially series novels. Maybe that's what makes a great series to begin with, is the characters and the place setting are all integrated. There's a couple of things that you have to nail in order to get a good series. And not in that, like, you need to nail all of them, but you need to get at least one of these right. And I think nailing the setting is a big one. Like, if you can capture a setting that feels real and alive and vibrant, then you can write a million fucking books in it. Like, there are 45 Discworld novels. And there probably could have been more. There would have been more. I think that's also true of, like, the world that sort of Douglas Adams created with the Hitchhiker books. 
there there's so much going on and you know that there's like a planet where there's a bar and there's something weird going on. So it's the same thing. Like there's a whole universe that he created where he only sort of sketched out parts of it. But you know there's hundreds and you know of characters and stories and lots of weird adventures and wacky stuff going on. Ironically enough, that's one of the perfect examples of the setting not feeling like a guidebook. Even though it's literally told through a guidebook because it's written as an in-universe guide. There's lots of offhand references to planets and historical figures and just like cultural things that they don't feel the need to explain because you would know that. And if you didn't know it, you would just cross-reference it in the book. Right. So even when he does take the time out to give you a guidebook-style explanation of something, it filling in that detail drops in a bunch of little unfilled-in details that just make the setting feel even richer. Yeah, and I think like even his settings can become inspiration for other writers or even writers who want to write in the same style or be influenced by him. You can sort of imagine another writer writing a sort of time travel space romp that's very reminiscent of the world that Douglas Adams created. Yeah. So. All right. Good. Well, um, we'll see you next time. We'll be reading The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. Um, so get your gritty detective yeah, slang don't, ready. Don't watch The Big Short or The Big Sick cause they're, or The Big Chill because they're all completely unrelated. You should watch The Big Lebowski. Um, wait, is the, the Big Lebowski is an adaptation of The Big Sleep, right? Or is it a long goodbye? I think it might be the long goodbye, but we'll get into that. Because there's lots of, like, meat on this. Yeah, we'll definitely, well, this will be a good chance for us to talk about uh, some film stuff. Right. Which exactly. will be cool. All right. So. Spoiler alert, stay tuned. <laughs> you stole my tagline. Mm-hmm.